The psalmist says in Psalms 100, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And we're going to end the reading of the psalm right there. Joyful worship is expressed in the community of the saints based on our corporate understanding of God's goodness and sovereignty. Now make no mistake about it, joy is a feeling. Joy is an emotion. It is a feeling of good pleasure and happiness that is dependent on who Jesus is rather than on who we are and the circumstances that at any given time we are going through. And that's important to understand that it is not like happy that is dependent on circumstances or happenstances. But joy is dependent upon who Jesus is. And knowing who Jesus is determines how much joy we have in our hearts. And according to Galatians 5 and 22, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, which lets us know that God is the source of the joy that we are speaking of here. And there may be all sorts of joy and all sorts of definition of joy, but the joy that we're speaking of here, God is the source of this joy. He gives it by his spirit as a gift of grace to his people. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to draw us near to Christ by showing us Christ's great love for us in the gospel. And as the gospel is proclaimed, this is why it's so significant to always be preaching the gospel to ourselves and up under the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we understand that Jesus' love for us never changes. It never falters. It never fails. It's always the same. He is the same today, tomorrow, and will be the same forevermore. Therefore, our joy can always be complete in him and full in him and sure in him because it's based again on who he is. And it is not to say that joy can't be mixed with other emotions. We don't want to deny that there are actually times when we will be sorrowful or sad. And in that sense, I can look at joy like the sun. It's always there. It's always high. But sometimes clouds can cover it up. It doesn't mean the sun has dissipated or it is gone. It may be overshadowed. And sometimes that can happen with our joy. But nevertheless, joy is always there. Joy is always ours because it is a gift of God's grace by virtue of us having the Holy Spirit. James 1 says this, Consider it pure joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience have its complete work, making you complete and perfect in all things, right? 
So again, it is not a matter of what we're going through. According to James, we are to consider it pure joy. When we are faced with all kinds of trials, pressures from without and pressures from within, that is a wonderful perspective on the joy that we have that is in the Lord. Nothing can rob us of that joy. Nothing can take that joy away from us. It is ours by faith in Christ and in him alone. So how is that joy expressed when we gather? And that's what Psalms 101 and 2 tell us. There we are given three ways that joy is expressed in worship. And there is no other space and no other place like being here right now among the saints of God. Of all the places that we can be in the world, this is a delight. And God has called us out and called us in to this sacred assembly whereby we can worship him. Rejoice in him. Sing praises to his glorious name. Express joy the way that it ought to be expressed. For he is a wonderful and gracious God. Now Psalms 100 is believed to be the capstone of a mini collection of psalms. Starting at Psalms 93 all the way to Psalms 100. The focus of these psalms primarily is the universal reign of God with a strong emphasis on doxological celebration. And all of these psalms give us indications of how we are to worship God when we gather together. They all may say, shout joyfully to the Lord. Praise his name, extol him. And all these emotional responses are granted in these psalms based on who he is and what he's like. In Psalms 93, for instance, there we find the Lord, Yahweh, is our God and he is sovereign. And he eternally reigns with majesty and power. That's just a summary of what that psalm is dealing with. Psalms 94 the Lord will vindicate his people and does not abandon them in their troubles. He both holds them near to his heart in loving kindness. In Psalms 95, we can summarize it this way. The Lord is God above all other gods. And this was significant to the nations at the time when Baal was considered a god and Molech and Dragon. But the people of God want you to know that their God, that they are in covenant with, he is God above all gods. Therefore, they can shout praises to his name. Psalms 96, the Lord is the soon coming king who would judge the nations in righteousness. Psalms 97, the Lord is the deliverer of his people and will preserve their souls from evil. Psalms 99, the Lord is holy and forgiveness is only found in him. And it's no wonder by the time we get to Psalms 100, it simply opens up with the word, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. 
and I elevate my voice intentionally just as an expression of what it should sound like when the people of God are together. And I was, I was um, Tony had given me the sheet about the questions of reflection, and I got a chance to read one, uh, the first one, about shouting, about making a joyful noise, about reading loud, and, and he gives an illustration about the last time we shouted. And it's interesting that it's not a matter of can we shout, but when we come together to celebrate God, will we shout? And what more important thing, a person, to celebrate than God, to shout to him, to lift up our voices to him, all of our energy, all of our capacity for emotion, to emote to God with loud shouting. This would signify the glad shout that loyal subjects uh, give when their king appears in their midst. And maybe you've seen some movies uh, to that effect in you know, ancient times when the glorious king would, would come out amongst his people and all the people would cheer and shout for their king. They would shout for their king simply because he is the sovereign king, but they would shout joyfully because he's good. And certainly those two elements go together when we think about how good and how gracious and sovereign our God is. That we can and we should, as we gather together as a community of believers, shout joyfully unto his name. And I'm not here to tell you what to shout or when to shout or how to shout, but the fact that we can shout and we should shout and we should celebrate our God in that manner. In a sense, you get the impression if you were to pass by a church that it would be noisy inside from the celebration of God. He's magnificent and he's wonderful. Isaiah 12 is a prophetic hymn that's set in the midst of this book and there, Isaiah, prophetically speaking, in verse 6, he says this, Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Again, reminding them of their soon coming king, and they could shout for joy because he is coming and he will be in their midst. And for us, we know he has come, and he is even now in the midst of his people as we gather together. So we can cry aloud and shout for joy for our God. Joshua 6 and 16, another interesting passage of scripture where we also find the people of God shouting. There they shout, for the Lord is going to give them the city of Jericho. And Joshua encourages them to shout after they have uh, uh, gathered around the city and marched around seven times and he says shout for this reason he the Lord God will fight your battles and he will give you the victory and uh, bring your enemies into your hands and so in that sense we see it's a shout of faith he said the Lord God will do this for you it's not ha it hasn't already been done but they are shouting in a sense preemptively before the God acts because he is a covenant God and he keeps his word 
so we can shout in faith to our God, knowing that he will deliver us from all of our enemies, knowing that he has ultimately delivered us from our greatest enemy, sin and the grave. Charles Spurgeon says this, and I quote, our happy God should be worshiped by a happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with his nature, his acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish, we should cherish for his mercies. So the first thing the psalmist tells us to do in corporate worship is to shout joyfully to the Lord. And he makes this disclaimer to all the earth. In other words, all peoples of all lands ought to shout joyfully to the God, to the Lord, because he is good to all peoples. The psalmist says God is good to all. And we know that the sun shines on the just and the unjust. So this is a universal call. And certainly if all mankind ought to shout, certainly we more so, because we know and we have tasted of his goodness and his grace. Secondly, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now, our service of God flows out of our worship of God. When we have a proper view of God in worship, then our service to him naturally flows out of our view to God, our view of God, I should say. And I think we can see this uh, in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, I'm sure you're familiar with that passage. It's when the year King Uzziah died. The writer says, I saw the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, angels, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook and trembled at the voice of him who called out. Certainly it was a loud voice calling out, shaking the building that the Lord was in. And while the temple was filled with smoke, then I said, woe is me. This is Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with, with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And you see the pattern there. Isaiah was brought into see the holiness of God. See, God exalted and worshipped by the heavenly host. 
as they shouted loudly. And because he understood how worship was done, serving God was not a problem. He gladly served God because of all who God was and all that God had done for him. And when we have a proper view of God, we have a proper view of ourselves. That God is holy and that we are not. And that we need him to extend to us forgiveness. And we see that here. He touched his lips with the hot coal, cleansing him, as it were, preparing him for service that was based out of proper worship of God. So in worship, we declare God's greatness by honoring him with all that we have and all that we are. Essentially, we bow down in humble submission and offer him our very lives. But we don't stay bowed down with our hands lifted up. Of course, God bids us to come to speak and to do in accordance with his good pleasure. And the whole purpose of God's calling is worship. I believe it was John Piper that says, missions exist because worship does not. In Exodus 17 and 6, God is speaking to Moses as he sends him to Pharaoh. And he sends him to Pharaoh and he tells him what to say. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you. Say to him, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. The very purpose and point of redemption, as we see portrayed there, was to bring the people out of bondage, out of captivity, that they may go to a designated place that was designated by God and to worship him. And brothers and sisters, we have been brought out of bondage to sin out of bondage to Satan, that God may call us in in order that we might give our lives as a sacrifice of worship to him. And even as we come together, we get a, we get a, a sense of that same principle, right? You know, saved as we are, but we still, in a sense, we come out of the world and we come in to the sacred assembly with one another that we might worship him that we might shout joyfully to him. It is Adam Clark that said, it is your privilege and duty to be happy in your religious worship. The religion of the true God is intended to remove human misery and to make mankind happy. He whom the religion of Christ has not made happy does not understand that religion or does not make proper use of it. Are you happy? You should be, we all should be, to be in Christ and to be in his service. It is, again, the basis of our joy to know the Lord, to know how he cares for us, to know his goodness, and his sovereign rule and reign 
over our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's only natural what Paul is, what Paul is essentially saying here, based on God's mercy, based on what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, punishing his son for our sins, averting his wrath that we so much deserved, showing forth mercy to us. It's only logical to present ourselves to this God for the sacrifice that he has made and offering to him worship in service. So we are to joyfully shout to him. We are to gladly serve him and worship him. And thirdly, we are to come before his presence with singing. What an amazing statement. To come near to God. To come into his very presence. Not with fear and trepidation as they did going toward the holy mountain, understanding how awesome he is. He is an all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-seeing God. And he bids us to draw near to him. Think of that. He knows us. He is intimately acquainted with all of our being, all of our thoughts. He knows even the far off, all of our sins. He altogether knows. And yet he bids us draw near unto me. How wonderful and how gracious is that? Because it is not based on us, but it is based on the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. For the very righteousness that he required from us, he gave to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sin that obscured our approach to him has been taken away at the cross. So there is no impediment there's nothing there that forbids us from coming into his very presence. How awesome is God that we come to him as dear children. And he bids us come, draw near, come before his presence with singing. Because again, the way has been opened up for us through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we draw near to him in full assurance of faith for all that he has done for us and realizing that we are in communion and we are in union with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the balance of scripture, <coughs> excuse me, singing seems to be not the only way that we can praise God, but it does seem to be a chief way in which God has designed for us to give him praise. Now, I don't, I don't claim to understand the psychology of, of, of all of that, of our humanity, but 
it is something to be said about singing. And this is across the board when we look at all people. When kids are having fun, right, rejoicing with one another, they just seem to naturally want to sing. People of all stripes and, and, and all ages and, and all cultures and, you know, and all, you know, moral or immoral. It's just something about singing because of a sense or a feeling of joy. And God has made us and he has made us for himself and he has designed us to rejoice in this way. Um, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul gives us a little glimpse uh, of, of what heaven is like. And we see singing there. God just inhabits the praise of his people in singing, it's, it's, it's scattered all throughout the Psalms that we are to sing to God. And the Apostle John, he describes a glimpse of eternity with a great multitude of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language. And you know what they're doing together? Singing before the Lamb. <coughs> Excuse me. And he gives us the words of their song. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and salvation belongs to the Lamb. In Colossians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 5, we are admonishing both of those passages to sing to the Lord joyfully in the midst of the congregation of his people. So we shout joyfully, we serve gladly, and we sing praises to our God when we come together as a community of believers in worship and fellowship with God. And then verse 3, the last verse that we're looking at today <clears throat> in Psalms 100, it gives us the reason for joyful worship. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Know lets us know that our worship is not just simply based on raw emotions. I think that's the fear and that's the danger sometimes of, you know, just letting the music just, just kind of go and the words don't matter and, you know, everybody can be in any given church and shouting and singing hallelujah without a true knowledge of what's even being said or who God is or what he's like. And so this is what reigns the people of God in, knowing that the Lord God Himself is God. Know that the Lord, Yahweh, himself is God. The people of God are to know that the God who created all things is the God that they are in covenant with. That he is the creator who made them and knows them. And they can be known and, he, and they can know him. Question number five. 
in the shorter catechism, asks this. Why are you to glorify God? It's a basic question, number five, in the shorter catechism for our children. And the answer is because he made me and he takes care of me. Simple. I am to glorify God because he made me and he takes care of me. What profound theology that is. More theology is found in that simple phrase than in all the universities in all the world, right? It's simple because he made me and he takes care of me. That is the basis of our glorifying God, the basis of our worship of God, the basis of our joy in God. To have a firm grasp of who he is and to be convicted and convinced of who he is. He's the sovereign God of the universe and he is the creator of all that is. And that God is in a personal relationship and covenant with his people. God the creator essentially is saying, you are mine. He created us. We are not here by accident. We are not here by random chance. God created us and he made us for himself. He has purpose for his creation. He made us for his very pleasure. And his pleasure in making us, once we realize that, it is our highest good. Those things are not contrary one to another. We are made for God. And we live for God, it is for our greatest good. And we can delight in him because he's a good God. Psalms 139, 13 through 16. The psalmist says this, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My very frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were written of me the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God made us. Right? What's the debate about? as far as when life begins. God is there in our mother's womb, forming us and fashioning us, designing us to be what it is that he would have us to be. And God makes no mistakes in his design of us in humanity. God God told Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet among the nations. See, God not only created us, beloved, those of us who are in Jesus Christ, but he recreated us. We have been, in a sense, twice made by God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works 
that he has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. God intricately and skillfully recreated us in Jesus Christ that we might bear the very image of his son. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we find these words of Paul. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we joyfully worship God. We praise God and serve him because we have the knowledge that he is our maker. He is our creator. And we are not an accident of random chance, but we have been wonderfully and skillfully made by God who we are in relationship with. And he is a good God. It says we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we see not only that he has made us, but he takes care of us. And who better to take care of us than the one who knows us? Who better to take care of us than the one who made us? Who better to take care of us than the one who loves us so more than we love ourselves? More than anyone else loves us. God loves us and he's proven his love to us by giving to us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has given the best of heaven for us. And what more proof of his love should we need or do we even need? And if God would give us Christ the best thing, certainly he would give us all other things to care for us. And so if he cares for us like that, then certainly we ought to have no problem joyfully worshiping him, shouting praises to his name, loudly singing glorious hymns in his worship. The shepherd's song comes to mind in thinking about the fact that we are sheep in his pasture. And we all know Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, he guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me a few days in my life. All the days of my life that's an assured promise of God. That goodness and his mercy and loving kindness is with us. It may not seem like it all the days of our lives, but it is. God is always at work for good in us. Even though the circumstances may cloud our view of that, but we have his eternal promise that his goodness and his mercy 
is following after us, hard after us, all the days of our life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we are certain, beloved, that God will provide for us all that we need. We are certain, according to the psalm, that he will even give our souls rest when they become weary. And he will guide us by his all-knowing and seeing eye in the paths of righteousness for his own glory's sake. He will protect us all the way through our lives. He will calm our fears as we trust in him. And he would discipline us, and I know it hurts, but he would discipline us for our good. We have his promise that he will never leave us nor leave us alone. He is with us, and he will lead us all the way home. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one who laid down his life for his sheep. And he gives to them eternal life. And none who have put their faith in him will perish. And no one can snatch him out of, no one can snatch us out of his hands. That's just how much he cares for us. So we praise him and we worship him. We gladly serve him. We sing joyful, joyfully unto him. And we come together to remember all of his great goodness to us, his people. And we do so knowing that he made us and we are his. Knowing that he cares for us. And we will see that in a moment, even as we take of the Lord's Supper. Right. Another reminder of his care for us. How God condescends to us and he gives us means of grace that we might remember him and what he has done for us and how good and how gracious he is to us. Let's pray together. Gracious God, who is our father, we bless you and we thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had in your word, God, just a. Sweet, sweet reminder of how wonderful you are and how worthy you are to just be praised and to be made much of, Father, especially as we assemble ourselves together, as we are in your presence. We know we are always in your presence, Father, but you have delighted to call us into the assembly, Lord, whereby we might just lift up our voices to you and shout to you and just acclaim your great name, for you are God in our midst. So we bless you, Father, and we just thank you, Lord, for all that we have heard. We pray now, God, that you will continue to be with us as we know you will. We thank you and we bless you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you.